Hello everyone and welcome back to another of Shared Ireland podcast. Our guest today is an ex-RUC man who has recently written a book titled Knights in Armour. Today we'll be discussing his book along with many other topics. Shared Ireland would like to welcome along Sam Thompson. Welcome Sam. Thank you. Sam, could you tell our listeners about your early life, where you grew up, what was society like then, and what, I suppose, influenced your thinking in joining the RUC? Okay, well, um, I was born in 1971, and my parents' family um, were from Dundee Street, which um, then, I think most of it's gone now, but ran between the Shankill Road and the Falls Road. Uh-huh. So, um, and my grandfather lived in Northumberland Street, again, quite close to the Falls Road end of it. So, um, I have a lot of memories of um, that area, which is now an interface. Um, most of my youth is spent growing up in Ballysillan area, um, Tyndale Estate, and then later on the Ballysillan Road itself. Um, attend the Cliftonville Primary School and the Boys Model. So, um, most of my early life would have been divided between Ballysillan and the Shankill areas. Okay. And I suppose, what was it that drew you to the RUC then in your, I suppose, teenage years? What, and what year did you join or what age were you? Okay, well, I think going back before that, uh, I'm probably of an age where I can just about remember before the Troubles started. Uh-huh. And I have um, very vivid memories of the start of the Troubles, mm-hmm. um, when barricades were being put up. Um, I can't say I understood what was going on. Like there was obviously knew something was going on. It was and it was quite quite frightening. Like we called down to see my grandfather one day. Um, he had been mid sixties, lived on his own, and he was sitting absolutely terrified with a hatchet across his knee. Mm-hmm. You know, because there was rioting going on virtually outside his um, front door, and then you were hearing various stories you know, about um, shots being exchanged back and forth between the two sides. So um, <clears throat> I grew up then through the seventies. Like I went to Cliftonville, our sports day was attacked one time by um, bigger kids from the old park area. You know, you would have maybe encountered people on the way home trying to beat you up or something like that. Um, and, and really, North Belfast throughout the 70s was like a very nasty and very brutal place. Like, there was people being shot dead and sectarian killings all over the show. Mm-hmm. And then going on um, you know, later in the 70s, as I um, sort of reached adulthood, um, in terms of the RUC, um, I didn't have any great mission. Uh, it wasn't a desire always to be in the police or anything like that, but the, the economy was imploding. You, know, you had deindustrialization, which would have happened anyway, but the problem with um, the troubles is that there were no other jobs coming in to replace them. So it offered um, financially stable employment, and plus the fact that in, like in Ballysillan it seemed like with the UDA were going around threatening to beat kids up for playing football and stuff like that. And um, from my point of view, I, I saw the police as um, one of the few who were actually trying to do something about it. I, I saw them as a, a an agent of stability or, or trying to bring back some sort of more civilised behaviour. But when you weighed up the obvious risk that there was yeah. to uh, the police, yeah. Um, how did that sit with you? Um, 
at, at first, of course, you're young. You have this what age, age were you? By the I, way, I was eighteen. You were eighteen, when I okay. Eighteen and um, eighteen about five months when I started, and eighteen when the application was in, and when my application was being protest, had war on point, you know, happened, and I thought, well, like eighteen soldiers and one goes, getting it's getting a bit scary. Mm-hmm. And I remember the night before I went down to Enniskillen to start my training, you know, laying in bed that night thinking, well, do I really want to be doing this? Mm-hmm. And that was the first time that I really felt a bit frightened about it. And simply decided, well, too, too late to change my mind now. I'd already left school and all the rest of it. Um, down I went once I got in there. was fine. So if you were to sum up in a sentence, what was your biggest motivation for joining the RUC? Um... It would have been a mixture of things. Um, it, it seemed, as I said, there was a secure employment. There seemed to be some sort of career prospect. And then I suppose if I'm really honest, like you're an 18-year-old lad, there's sort of like a prospect of a bit of um, excitement. Okay. You know, as well. It would have been a combination of all those things. Okay, very good. In your book, Sam, Knights in Armour, how much of it is based on your experience of the RUC? Is it all fiction or is there... A bit of, a bit of both in there. Well, uh, it's not faction. It's a common question, and um, I tend to answer it by saying it. Much of it was inspired by real events, but but they're not real events. Mm-hmm. It's set in a fictional a f- town a fictional or a city. T- yeah, a fictional town, and there's very good reason for it because if I'd have placed it in a real spot, incidences I describe could maybe be like a real. Mm-hmm. Incident because there is a commonality to these things, yeah, which risks upsetting people, and also somebody could turn around and say, Well, look, that didn't happen, or it didn't happen that way. Um, and then you're just getting into all sorts of difficulties. So, a fictional town, and you can basically make whatever you want happen in it. So, it's really just to be representative of Northern Ireland in general, you know, it's um, basically. A provincial town like Downpatrick, Armagh, Dungallan, Oma, Straban, anything like that, somewhere in the west of the band, basically, that was what it was trying to convey by the fictional town. So, yes, um, you see things happening, and um, it would be difficult to say that didn't influence you, you know, because these things are in your head. Um, but what it would tend to do is. Um, take something and change it into something else. Mm-hmm. I, I would use the word inspired or influenced, but certainly not copied. What sort of feedback have you got from your ex-colleagues after it, they read the book? It's generally been pretty good. Um, generally? <laughs> generally. Um, well, the negative comments weren't about the book at all. Right. I, I got a couple of fairly negative remarks um, directed at me because... Um, there's a quotation from Danny Morrison on the cover. That's right. And that was from people who, one guy said as soon as he saw that, he threw the thing in the bin, so he hadn't actually read it. Yeah. Um, no, the feedback's been pretty good, and I've actually got some um, lovely um, messages through from people. Um, I got one from one guy, contacted me, and said that um, his father was in the police, and he never really understood him until he read the book and understood what he went through. Um there's another guy who I now know on um, Facebook and he contacted me and said he had read it the first time around in the early 90s and the book inspired him to join the police. And, and I thought, wow. <laughs> I said, well, I hope you didn't regret it. And he said, no, not at all. I'm Chief Inspector now. 
Right. So okay. that, that was actually quite a nice feeling that you can have um, this influence uh, on people's lives without even realizing it. Yeah. yeah. You know, which is quite um, quite flattering. Yeah. So yeah, most of the ex-colleagues have been, you know, pretty cool with it, and um, and others have said it conveys, um, you know, what was reality for them. Mm-hmm. I suppose just to set the scene before we get into the nuts and bolts of this yes. conversation today. You joined uh, RUC in 1989, is that no, correct? No, 79. Or 1979. Sorry, 1979. Yeah. And you left it when? Um, 2008, I think. 2008. <laughs> okay, no problem. Yeah, no problem. I, uh, yeah 2008, you yeah. had to think for a minute. Yeah. So, so you had a... It was about 28. 28, 29 years. years yeah, like no that, problem. Yeah. Sam, in your honest opinion, how were Catholic members of the RUC perceived within the force? That varied. Um, there was, um, in some case, I think it depends on who they were interacting with. Mm-hmm. Um, some people, absolutely no problem with them at all. And then you would have had people who would have been fairly hard, political or you know, sectarian attitudes would have regarded them with a bit of um, mistrust. Um, like my first section, there was a policewoman who came from the Shankill area, Lurgan, and she'd never any problem whatsoever. Um, other cases, you would have had um, like banter and inverted commas, which would maybe have got um, quite nasty, but I think a lot of it depended on the individual themselves and who they were working with. Um, like I always appreciated in many ways that um, they were giving up an awful lot more than we were. You know, like, and I worked with people from joined from West Belfast and places like that, and they're basically having to cut all family ties and stuff. So um, I thought it was a bit out of order, to be honest, for people to regard them with suspicion for that. You know, because they were they were giving up a hell of a lot more than we were, and. Um, and until relatively late, when police started um, rerouting orange parades or something, we were never looked upon as traitors. Although that started to come more and more into it um, as time went by, and certainly, you know, among um, a lot of loyalist organisations, would have regarded us as traitors. But but they had that basically from near enough their entire community. Um, and I'm friends of um, still some colleagues and one from a Catholic background. He um, went down to Dublin with me to do an interview with the Irish Examiner. And um, he just went down for riding a train. I hadn't seen him for a while. It gives a chance to chat and stuff. And we had a bit of lunch. We're walking through Dublin. He says, you know, this is where I feel at home. You know, I feel that this is the... Um, like, the, you know, the heart of my nation. I said, well... Good luck to you. It doesn't bother me in the slightest, you know? Yeah. Sam, did you ever witness any colleagues abuse their power? Yeah. Yeah, um, I would be a liar if, um, you know, I, I said it didn't. Um, any examples? Without naming names, obviously. Okay, well, I'll give you an example of one incident that um, absolutely, totally embarrassed me. Um, and it was in Armagh, and um, there was some orange parade 
going along. I can even tell you where it happened. It was um, the top of College Hill, where it joins um, Mary Street, I think. So the parade was coming along there, and there was a guy from local MSU who, um, what police managers would have called a problem child, is always in various bits of trouble. But these um, teenage girls came along, and they're just watching the thing. And he started, you know, um, F off, you wee finian bitches, and all this sort of thing. And I thought, like, what's all that about? You know, and um, the problem with police, and this would apply to any police organisation, not just the RUC, is that um, people in junior positions don't feel very comfortable at challenging people who are more senior in terms of experience and mm -hmm. stuff like that. So if you consider like the situation in the RUC, okay, I started off in Armagh, you're living in the station, mm -hmm. that's the first thing. Um, you desperately want to fit in when you arrive there. Of course. And the other thing about the police is you're relying on your colleagues for your physical safety. So if you um, become unpopular, you might need help some evening and might be a little bit slow arriving. Yeah, and that uh, same would apply in the military, you know, um, you know as well. It's got to be one of the very few occupations where um, you're relying on the people you work with to keep you out of the hospital or to keep you out of the morgue. So for anyone to think that that doesn't influence how people think and act, then I think they're being very naive because um, people, nobody wants to get hurt and nobody wants to get killed. Do you see when you heard? Uh, this police officer yeah. referring to these girls as yeah. Finian yeah. bastards. Um, mm -hmm. Did you did you want to step up and challenge him? Was it reported later, or what no. was the general feeling amongst the rest of you? Well, I, if I recall, I was there. Uh, I don't know if it's on my own or someone else. Strange enough, but we did end up in points like that sometimes on our own. Um, I don't think they went away. I think they sort of like looked at him, um, and there's a bit of verbals. But no, I didn't report it. Um, it probably would have been a complete another waste of time, and my life would probably have been made of misery if I had it done. Yeah. Okay. So I'm telling you, did you find it suspicious that on the eve of the IRA sensation in 1994, that a Chinook Army helicopter went down in the Mull of Kintyre, killing 10 senior RUC intelligence officers, 9 Army intelligence officers and 6 MI5 officers? Or have I just got my conspiracy head on here? I didn't find it suspicious in the slightest. Um, accidents do happen. Um, no one has yet to tell me what benefit there would have been from the government killing all these people. I suppose the, the, um, the conspiracy know, theory would be is to get rid of the old yard in preparation for a new society. Yeah, well, well possibly so. Um, like, I didn't know any of those individuals particularly well or anything like that. Um, I, I just don't buy it. Because um, the only way it could have happened is... Um, for someone to have interfered with the helicopter in some shape or form um, and I can't really see how somebody could do that without somebody noticing you're going to have to get you know the ground crew on board and all that no I, I just I'm not really a conspiracy theorist yeah. okay. I, I think the likeliest thing is that um, there's been an instrument malfunction I was actually in Scotland that night driving towards a ferry and it was quite foggy along that bit of coast 
So my own guess is that they've come along, there's maybe been a navigation error, they've been flying at a height they thought was safe and lo and behold there's a cliff and a hillside in front of them and uh, I just don't buy the conspiracy bit. Sam, as part of the Good Friday Agreement, the RUC was to be disbanded and the PSNI set up. Given how problematic the RUC were perceived to be within the nationalist community, yeah. how supportive were you and your colleagues of this move? Um, I, I can't really speak um, for the RUC as a whole in that. I know that was very hurtful to a lot of people. The royal bit meant a lot to a lot of people. I can't say it ever meant a lot to me. Um, I've never been a royalist. That, that may sound a bit strange. I don't believe in a monarchy. Um, and personally, I thought that was a price worth paying. And I would emphasize personally, if it brought more public support. But um, even within the RUC before that, we knew, we knew that it had to change. Now, I was involved in training in the early 90s. And we worked with um, peace groups and community groups to um, change police training. Because um, this came out of um, a workshop at Coromila, of all places. And we had the reality that the RUC was about 90% Protestant, um, policing a community which is probably about 40% Catholic. Uh, and I'll give you an example of how ignorant some communities are of another. Once I attended the um, death of a priest um, in Clonard Monastery, there was a guy with me um, who's investigating. It came from a fairly middle class part of um, East Belfast. He certainly wasn't sectarian or anti-Catholic or anything. I never heard anything like that out of him. But you used to have these forms that you filled in for the information of pathologists and had all sorts of weird and wonderful questions in it like um, you know, what sort of house the people live in and they had a thing like um, you know, number of children. So we're talking to this priest's colleague and um, this guy's going through the form and says, um, did he have any children? To which the answer was, he's a priest. And he says, yeah, no, but did he have any children? And I had to sort of quietly take it and say, oh, priest, don't get married, <laughs> don't have children. But um, that to me was an example, um, not of malice, but of ignorance in the proper sense of the term. He just wasn't aware of that. So, um, and this is the problem with this social apartheid that we have in this country, that um, people can grow up and live virtually their entire lives in minimal contact from people with the other community and they just simply don't understand them. Now that was a pretty innocent example, mm -hmm. but, it, it, but it did illustrate something. So the RUC realised that they needed the change, so um, when I was part of training that time we were, began a thing like a community awareness programme um, where we had, had people from various community groups in just to sort of, look, this is what goes on where we live. Um, you know, had people in, you know, from various churches and all the rest of it. Um, some of the students thought it was a bit patronising. There's no doubt there was a bit of resistance, you know, amongst to it. But um, the view I took at the time, the view of the um, commandant in the training centre at the time was, like, if we don't change ourselves, somebody's going to change us um, so therefore the PSNI came along and to be honest after the ceasefires appeared and there's a patent report like um, was always going to be in the card that something like that was going to happen 
So from your own point of view, just to sum up, you had no issue with uh, the changing of the name or nothing that, and you identified that change was necessary for society to move on? Yeah, it, it was necessary. It took a long time to get the political support from Sinn Féin for policing. Um, but I suppose they were going um, by what their um, voters told them to do. Yeah, well, every political party can't move too far away yeah. from its base. Um, like the PSNI, I think, is in a better position than the RUC was in terms of the breadth of community support, but it's not there yet. You know, um, I've seen comments on the media in the last few days. You know, um, policing is a highly political activity, um, even if it's not intended to be, the consequences of what it does can be um, yeah, there was very a, political. The new um, Chief Constable made a statement yeah. recently that um, in order to combat uh, criminal gangs and terrorism, yeah. as he put it, that um, it would also include the removal of their children. Yeah. Which obviously he came in for widespread criticism, and as a parent, I can, I can see why people were well, angry at that statement. Yeah. Well, well, that just sort of came from my children uh, should not uh, be held accountable uh, for, came for from any actions feet. that I took. Um, going back in my times, that was never even discussed. It was never even discussed. Mm -hmm. I, I um, referred about three people to social services, and for them to go along and look at their kids, and that's because there was domestic violence and stuff going on. Um, now, if the police went and searched the house, and there was like loaded automatic weapons lying about and something, you know, or primed explosives sitting around a house with a child in it, there could be a case. You know, but uh, but there would be fairly rare circumstances, and um, I don't know of any incidents where it ever happened. And I think if that were introduced as a matter of policy, um, it would be a complete utter disaster. I think that um, this guy's new; he's probably been thinking off the top of his head, and I don't think he'd be repeating those remarks. I'd be surprised if he does. Yeah, Sam. In two thousand and seven, you completed as a common with Angarda Shakana. You're one of the first PSNI officers to do so. Can you tell our listeners how that came about? Um, I think the two organisations got together and agreed on um, a bit of cross-fertilisation. And, and again, I think the idea was that we could pick up um, good things, I suppose, from the guards. Um, they're also in the position of being more or less on their own, they can't go along and serve a couple of years with another force the way people can. You know, like our senior officers would have went over to England for a couple of years, they didn't really have that. So it offered um, opportunities both ways, and um, there's just simply an email went around asking for volunteers, and I thought it would be um, an interesting experience, so I put my name down for it, and um, and, was and chosen. How long did this? Like, were, were you actually? What were you doing? Oh well, 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 I, well I, la, like the last lot of years, of my career was in headquarters, and I worked in IT. Right. So I went down to the Garda's IT department. So I was based in Phoenix Park in the um, headquarters. For how long? About two months. Oh, okay. Um, which was interesting. Um, it wasn't particularly well organised. You know, when I arrived there, um, nobody seemed to be expecting me. There wasn't really much of a programme. 
um, as attached to an office which roughly, and I say very roughly, mirrored my own with a couple of um, policewomen from guards up in our place before and they, and they loved it actually. Um, I think they thought that um, as women they were treated a lot better in the PSNI than in the Garda. Um, I, I found it interesting in terms of culture and organisation it really reminded me strongly of the RUC in the 1980s. It was very um, rank conscious, um, everything up through the chain of command. Um, I'll give you an example. In the job that I was doing, part of my duties was to authorise um, the purchase of what we call small systems. You know, like if somebody needed a laptop to help on a particular bit of work or a particular piece of equipment, they would have sent in an email to me saying what they needed for and all the rest of it. Had I judged it, um, and I could have authorised that, you know, provided it wasn't, you know, an extortion amount of money. In the Garda, that had to go up to the Chief Superintendent. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I found that quite interesting. The rank and file guards, you know, up to sort of like inspector rank were fine. I think it was made to feel very welcome. The hierarchy, I don't think, quite knew what to make of you. Um, I don't think it was a case of the thought that we're going to spy on them, but I thought that I got the impression that they maybe didn't want us coming back, um, reporting and things which maybe they may have been embarrassed about or, you know, would have cast them in a bad light, you know, or anything like that. At the end of it, I wasn't even asked for a report, you know. I made my own notes and um, observations. And I know that the guards that came up to our place, they had to put in a fairly detailed report when they went back. While you were working with the guards in Dublin, <clears throat> obviously you were still a servant member yeah. of the PSMI. Yeah. So that meant there was still, in theory, yeah. a target on your back. Yeah. What sort of protection was put in place for you while you were in... None whatsoever. Um, did you carry a personal protection no, weapon? No, no, not at all. Um, like we wouldn't have been allowed to yeah. in, in the South. No, none whatsoever. Um, I, I think I was fortunate enough to go in a period when dissident activity was an all-time low. I didn't feel under any great threat when I was down in Dublin at all. Um, the hardest part of it was staying in Temple Bar. I was trying to get to sleep at night with all the noise of people coming out of, out of bars and clubs at all hours of the morning. Uh, that was um, about the toughest bit. I, I wasn't tremendously concerned about it. I was going to ask you this question later on in this podcast, but seeing that we're talking about it yeah. now. Um, now that you're retired mm -hmm. from the RUC yeah. slash PSNI, yes. do you still feel that there's a threat against your personal safety nowadays? I think it's more a potential threat. Um, so far, the various dissident groups haven't targeted r retired police or anything like that. That's not, but that could change. Um, I don't particularly feel under a big threat. Like I've went up um, as a guest up the failure in West Belfast a couple of times. I haven't felt um, remotely under you know threat up there. Um, that's not to say that I'm going to go drinking in the rock bar on a Friday night anytime soon. But um, why was wrong with the rock bar? <laughs> that just says a certain reputation. <laughs> um, at the minute, no, but 
you, you can't be too complacent. No. Okay, um, just before we move off the Garda, how were you received by the Garda? As I said, fine. Um, I, I found um, they were quite friendly. Um, I went out with various um, people to do various things out with the traffic thing. One time, went out with this young lad in a traffic corps, and it's quite funny. Like he, um, he started telling me about how he, um, he hated these Nordies coming down and speeding, and then he quickly went in. No offence. <laughs> No, they were fine. Yeah. Um, um, you know, um, they were quite sympathetic, actually. Um, no, the no, the experiences would have had, um, and it was nice just to see things from um, you know a, a different perspective because their experience was very different, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Sam, in June, the Irish Times published an article by you, which recounts a meeting you attended. You called it a reconciliation lunch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For those listeners who perhaps didn't see the article, can you just set the scene for us again, how it came about and who was there? Okay, um, one of the good things about social media, I know it can be incredibly toxic and can generate an awful lot of very silly arguments at times, but it gives you the opportunity to get in contact with people you otherwise wouldn't. And um, you mentioned the guy, um, Glenn Bradley, um, before we started interviewing. Um, I got to know him and he actually invited me down to this and um, I was a bit worried about it to be perfectly honest um, as I said in the article as expected I used to have this uh, advert on TV you know um, to promote tourism in South Armagh and somebody goes in the bar and everything goes all quiet uh, and that's what I expected that as um, expected in this sort of like ro- room full of Provies, you know, that are going to be quite hostile, but but it wasn't like that at all. There's quite a range of people, yet people who weren't really um, involved in the conflict at all. Um, former victims commissioner was one. Um, the guy who's lectured Santers was some Swedish guy. Um, I'm not quite sure what the story was of him, but it was just a group of people and a and a broad mix of people. On other occasions, we've had like a former DUP MLA and stuff. Um, but it was made unusual and that there was people there who I would have considered as formerly being in the provisional IRA. Um, but I, I thought it was important to go because if you go back through a time in the RUC, like part of the reason you joined was to try and bring peace around. And, um, what actually inspired me and made me do it at the end of the day, I mentioned again before the interview, I studied um, history and started um, like a Northern Ireland archive of war veterans. And there's a guy I spoke to once, I'm now deceased, called John Weaver. He was a consultant, the RVH, but in his young life, he was a major in the Gurkhas in the Far East. And um, he had this experience at Kohimemfal, where his um, unit was involved in a bayonet fight with Japanese soldiers, and um, guy beside him was run through. But he, in his later life, in his middle age, around about the age I am now, he joined a thing called the Anglo-Japanese Friendship Society, and they met up with former Japanese soldiers. So I thought, if this guy can do that after the awful experiences he had, then there's no reason in the world why I couldn't do something similar. 
and I found on a human level could get on um, with these people absolutely fine, um, no problem at all. Um, keep in touch, like um, like it's pretty infrequent, like we're talking about two or three times a year, you know, at the most. Um, but I couldn't help thinking that if, if a lot of these conversations we were happening had have been going on in the 1960s, maybe we wouldn't got into the pickle we did. Yeah. What did you take away from that meeting, Sam? Um, well, what I took away from it, um, I think that they are genuine and that they say the war is over. And when you say they, you're referring to Republicans here? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, no uh, I think that's totally genuine. Yeah. Um, there's obviously other people in the go at the minute and as far as they're concerned it's not over but you know I view that as being two sort of separate conflicts if you like. Um, I, I think they genuinely um, want um, a dialogue not just I mean what I would term former enemies but um, between the two communities but um, that's going to be more difficult. You know, um, I went along and did that. A lot of people wouldn't like that. You know, a lot of people can't let go. A lot of people are still very angry. Um, and probably with good reason. You know, I can't sort of say to other people, you should do X, Y, and Z, because I don't know what their life experience is. You do accept that there's hurt and trauma on, on oh, all absolutely. sides? Absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. Of course there is, yeah. yeah. And, and I suppose, you know, coming from you, an X. I suppose mm-hmm. you, you had both journeys, you had the RUC journey yeah. and then the PSNI journey. Mm-hmm. It's important that voices like you, I believe, do speak out and I suppose let everybody hear that you are prepared to, I suppose maybe, admit that there was wrongdoings on your side, all sides. And well, well, look, look, there obviously was. Yeah. You know, there was deaths caused... Um, uh, and not all of them have been justifiable. Aside from deaths, there's been injuries um, uh, and all the rest of it. Um, we're at, you have to remember, like the RUC were recruiting from what was a sectarian society, remember? You know, you're re- recruiting from the public at large, and Northern Ireland was a very sectarian place in the 1970s and 1980s. So if some of those attitudes aren't going to be imported, Tell me how you could avoid it, unless you're recruiting from a totally different pool. It was a very violent place, and violence breeds violence. And um, there was all sorts of pressures and so on going on. I'm not going to start discussing individual incidents or starting to make excuses, but yes, there was obviously hurt caused. I suppose acknowledgement is a good starting point for reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tell me this, just when we're, when we're on this, question springs to mind. What did the RUC think of the UDR? Um, again, I can't give a corporate view. Um, no, from your own experiences and I, I, those of your oh, colleagues, oh, I suppose. Okay, well, all I can do is speak about on my own experiences. Yeah. Um, I, I knew very few of them socially. I knew um, one lad who was full-time, and he was just interested in being a DJ and stuff like that. Um, perfectly normal guy nothing um, extreme or untoward out of them. I felt a bit sorry for them in the point of view um, a hell of a lot of them were getting killed. You know, and unlike the 
army of the RUC, we could could do things you know, in terms of arrests and so on. We were, I suppose, imposing a certain amount of attrition on the other direction, whereas they really weren't. Um, so, the, so in many respects, it seemed you know, particularly a lot of their killings were off duty and so on. Um, in Armagh, around about '82, there was sort of like a local UVF unit sort of sprung up. And let's just say there was a fair overlap between some of the UDR and the UVF. You know, if you had a nice Venn diagram, you know, you would have had a, a group that was common to both. The Middleston Triangle. Well, uh, well, uh, it was way after that, but um, I, and I'm not saying anything that can't be verified. No. Like, there's people convicted in courts and so on. Absolutely. You know, no yeah. for, for for these things. Yeah. So um, I'm not making but this up. But, but I'll get, sorry, I'll just give you a little yeah. story. Info. One night there was like um, sort of like a row outside a bar, sort of things. Police get called to, and it was a couple of these sort of young lads which were in this local UVF unit. So it got a bit of argy bargy, and um, you know, police pulling battens out and swinging around with these UVF guys. And there's UDR foot patrol came along, and they actually started helping the UV UVF guys. So UDR foot patrol. Started yes. helping the UVF guys against the, against the RUC. Yes. Okay. Yes, and um, and the inspector was there. Um, had to like tell them in uncertain terms that it didn't back off. That there was going to be very serious consequences. That, that, that's well, obviously I believe it. But for anybody living in America or yeah. wherever listening to this. Would find that they weren't swinging rifle butts at us or anything like that, but like they were trying to get these guys offside and stuff like that. So they obviously knew each, you know. So knew. so so this is a a paid force within the British Army. Yeah. Helping loyalist paramilitaries against the RUC. Well, the four of them that, that came down that street certainly yeah. were. Um, and what year was this? Just for that Clark, was that was eighty two. Eighty two. Eighty two. But um. You know, I, I don't want to start bashing them. As I said, I, I didn't, I didn't have any great intimate knowledge with them. Um, you know, it would be totally wrong to say everyone on it, you know, was like that because I've heard people with very um, broad brush statements against the RUC, or they're all this, they're all that, and all the other. And I can tell you, they certainly weren't. Um, but yeah, that 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 did happen. Yeah, there was certainly a perception, especially as you will. I suppose yeah. agree with within the nationalist community yeah. that they were. <clears throat> I suppose while they were trained or not, they certainly weren't disciplined, uh, and they were pretty heavy-handed. And I suppose sectarian was yeah. as a word that was, I suppose, justifiably used from the nationalist well, well, community. Well, I heard um, some Catholics mentioned to me that they were always more frightened if they if they're stopped the UDR and if they're stopped by the police at a road stop. Well, um, I remember well, people well, telling me that if they were stopped by the UDR, they were praying that there was an RUC man with them. Aye, yeah, because while they mightn't have um, particularly liked us, but I, I, I would still say that an ordinary people going about their business, you know, at a road stop, you know, hadn't done anything to fear. Mm-hmm. You know, fr- from from the RUC, um, I wouldn't say would have been particularly well liked, but I don't think that we're disliked in the way that the regular army or the UDR would have been. 
Sam, just getting back to your Irish Times article. Yeah. Now, this is a pretty long-winded question here. Okay. And there's, there's two or three parts <laughs> left, but so okay, we'll go we, ahead. we can I'll, come I'll, back I'll, to I'll, them. I'll do my best. You finished your Irish Times article with a sentence that stood out, and I quote hopefully accurately here. Yes. Maybe peace is too important to be left to the politicians. Yeah. So I suppose keeping this in mind, Sam, A, what practical steps can we in society take to build I guess bridges in that regard. B. Is it possible to um, comfortably live together when our political parties are so polarised? And finally, Glenn Bradley, who you alluded yeah. to there early on a joint podcast with Danny Morrison for Shared Ireland, said, "Party of esteem is a missing ingredient." What's your thoughts on on that? Right. Okay. We'll take the first bit. Um, peace is too important to be left the politicians. Yes. Well, quite of it. Uh, I think part of the problem we're suffering from at the minute, the Good Friday Agreement envisaged power sharing as setting this example for the wider community of um, the two different political traditions working together. That really hasn't happened. What we've had is division of power. We've had people who have been in government with each other, who have been, who don't even say hello to each other or shake hands with each other, um, and have been at daggers drawing. There, there's a, there's a, the expression out there that we had a, a political process, not a peace process. Yeah, we had, and um, but uh, but I think the initial intention was that at street level you could see, um, you know, Paisley at on, you know, with McGuinness, and, and this would provide an example. Well, that was maybe too short-lived, uh, and obviously um, Paisley was maybe a bit too friendly for a lot of people in the DUP. Um, they, they couldn't stomach that. Yeah. And, and, and therein lies the problem. There hasn't really been a, there hasn't really been a reconciliation process. The DUP have been involved um, because it's the only way they're going to get their hands on power uh, in government. So in the absence of anything better going on, I think it's up to each individual citizen who wants a more peaceful society just to try and do it through their own private lives. Um, like my efforts have been pretty modest, like talking to a few people maybe doesn't sound like a big deal, but the, the fact that it's been reported in the papers and stuff like that shows that yep. in some respects it is a big mm -hmm. deal. Mm -hmm. And. Um, these conversations need to be taking place all across society. We're still living in what I refer to as a self-imposed apartheid, particularly in working class areas. I don't think it's so much a problem in um, areas of private housing, which I think are, are pretty well mixed, you know, um, most places. But in terms of social housing and housing states, it's still way too possible for people to go through their entire life with minimal contact with someone um, from the other tradition. Um, so anything which um, brings people together uh, and in conversations, um, and I think the thing about the conversations is you have to be respectful. Now in the conversations that I have, like there's been no one having a go at me. Um, and I think that's, important now you could say we're maybe dancing around the subject but maybe it just takes a bit of time before people can yeah. get the trust around that now how much going on about the past how helpful that is is a different issue entirely now 
I can understand how bereaved families and so on of maybe a lot of issues and hear this wonderful phrase closure being put about. Um, I don't know if that's really possible. Maybe for some people. But do you believe that acknowledgement should be given? That acknowledging that yes, we were wrong, whoever the actors may have been. Will it be the British government or? Yeah, 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 but I think all actors need to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, you could be forgiven at the minute for thinking that the IRA never killed a civilian in, in the whole 25 years. Yeah. You know, um, you know, I would like to know who thought it'd be a good idea to roast people to death in a restaurant at Le Mans, for example. Um, why decisions were made which were totally reckless as regards to any civilian casualties might ensue. You know, um, and I suppose uh, Republicans just to balance that out would say that who thought it was a good idea to shoot people dead when they could have been arrested. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think those are more important issues as to what policies were. Um, my own view is instead of looking at specific incidents and trying to put blame, they need to say, okay, what was international law in place at the time in relation to war crimes? Because there's rules in relation both to states and non-state players. And I'm going to say, okay, on such occasion, this organisation committed a war crime. Uh, And that might be a better way of doing it. You know, that's my pet idea. Other people may think I'm talking nonsense, which is is fair enough. I'm so sorry. So what's the second part of your question there? Is it possible to comfortably live together when our political parties are so polarised? That that is really, really difficult. Um, A lot of the core issues are are still there. And um, I've read with interest some of the comments in the last few days about these recent opinion polls that show um, you know, a slight majority in, in, in favour of unity. 51% Yeah, think, 51% and so on. You know, 52% is the will of the people, remember. Um, but regardless of what constitutional arrangements we have, whether it be in the United Kingdom or in the United Ireland, the problems of a very divided society are going to remain. Um, you're still going to have things like marches and bonfires and all the things that cause problems are still going to be there. People are still going to want to march. They're still going to want to have their bonfires. Um, what's going to happen? Are the guards going to st- start stopping all these things? You know, um, there's going to be a whole raft of issues which are still going to be entirely live. You know, all the issues concerning the past you know, the pain and the bitterness and the resentment and all the rest of it on both sides is all still going to be there. So while I can understand particularly people from a nationalist background who say, okay, we've been waiting a hundred years and they're, and they're quite impatient, um, it's not going to be a panacea for anything. You know, it may be an improvement if it's um, properly thought out and properly implemented. But um, you know, if you raise a trickle over the city hall tomorrow morning, you know, people's lives are going to be pretty much the same as they were the day before. It's going to take a long time to make a difference. Yeah. And um, you l- and look at the the only example I think we can really look at is um, the amalgamation of East and West Germany, which is useful in that the two economies were quite different, and you had a bigger, richer economy to the west and a poorer one to the east. You look at the voting patterns, modern German elections. Like we're now, what, 25 years after unity there? Mm-hmm. And these far-right parties are doing exclusively, doing well exclusively in the former East. Yeah. You know, so um, it's going to take 
maybe 60 years, you know, for, 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 for the things they align. Um, I, I don't know what the answer is. I really think we need to start integrating people, and that has to start in the schools. Absolutely. Um, but there's vested interest against that. Um, but, but recently, <clears throat> speaking to Dr. Margaret Ward, mm-hmm. um, she told me that integrated schooling doesn't necessarily mean that there is no religion taught or one religion. At integrated schooling, there is still your religion, my religion, and somebody else's religion. Oh, yeah, well, I remember speaking to a couple which, of which the, I wasn't aware of. Oh, this. yeah, well, I remember um, speaking to a couple of Australians about this years ago. They laughed and joked that they used to go to each other's assemblies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, look, you can have integrated education where there's a religious element in countries that we have a commonality with, like Australia, Canada, the United States. Other countries can do it, so why can't we? You know, my personal view is I'd rather there was no religion in schools at all. If people want to send their kids to a church, they get a certain religious philosophy. Outside fi- of the education system. Outside of it altogether, yeah. but that, that's my personal yeah. view. Um, again, we have to be practical about it. Um, I say that, you know, we're talking really here about the Catholic Church, let's face it, because with state schools, they're not really Protestant schools, anyone can go to them. Although they, a lot of them do tend to have ministers on boards of governors and so on, I'd rather take um, yeah. take any, all churches out of education. Just, just saying that you touched upon a recent poll that came out there that yeah. um, suggested that 51% of people living in the north would, under the current circumstances, vote yeah. for um, vote yes in a border poll yes. for Irish unity. Obviously, as you rightfully said, Sam, um, you cannot drag kicking and screaming 800,000 or a million unionists yeah. slash loyalists yeah. yeah. into an All-Ireland yeah. against the will because that would be replacing one well, One disgruntled minority for another. For another. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So I suppose, you know, whether people want to accept this or not um, or bury their head in the sand, the conversation will continue and it has gathered legs this past year, 18 months, two years yes. since the Brexit scenario has come about. So I suppose getting to my point... The best way forward is, do you believe, to create like an All-Ireland Forum where, as you rightfully say, we cannot rush into this. There has to be practical steps talked about, dismissed, agreed upon. There has to be some sort of a, a dialogue, I suppose, before anything can happen. Uh, How would you see uh, this conversation uh, taking place? I, I, I can't see it taking part place um, with the political parties um, if the UUP for example were to take part of it they'd be immediately called Lundies with the UP um, I, I think unionism in general is pretty much in denial denial about it they say well in a bit comes the bit you know people aren't going to give up the NHS and um, you know they're going to be worse off nationalism doesn't always think like that. I'm not necessarily saying that people would be worse off, but if people voted for Brexit and they're saying, look, I don't care if we lose your jobs, I don't care if there's no medicine, I don't care if people are starving to death, I want to leave you. So if people can, um, blinkers a bit of a derogatory term, but if people can be so single-minded that they're willing to basically suffer economic distress to get out of one union, well, then the chances are that 
people might be so single-minded to be prepared to suffer economic stress <laughs> to get out of another union. So, um, so, so that's where I think the denial comes yeah. in. And especially if you threw into the mixing pot that most academics from independent research have produced papers to suggest obviously one infrastructure, one police force, one health yeah. service, one education yeah. service, one economy would actually be a benefit for the island as a whole plus the citizens living in it. So I think um, this argument to say that you know we won't be better off, um, I think as time goes on and the more research is done on this, that argument will appeal into... Well, 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 I'm not actually making that argument. No, I know uh, you're um, not. You know, no, um, no, I know you're not. You know, um, and in recent years, I don't think the economic argument is as strong as it used to be. Um, but I've always thought myself that if Irish unity comes around, I'm always told as historians not to regard anything as inevitable. It's starting to look like it may be inevitable, but there, but lots of things can happen. I think it'll be outside factors which will do that. And um, we're going through the Brexit process, which I think is poisoned um, quite a lot of what I would say um, uh, moderate nationalists, people who would um, regard themselves as Irish, wanted to lead Irish lives, you know, um, you know, culturally they're Irish, but they would have been happy enough post Good Friday Agreement um, as long as like unionism wasn't in their face. You know, as long as there was uh, equality, I Yes, suppose. they weren't having yeah. flags we had at them, you know, every 10 minutes, you uh -huh. know, and were able to get on and lead Irish lives yeah. within the union. I think Brexit's poisoned that quite a bit. I also think, and we'll see on Tuesday with the Supreme Court decision, that uh -huh. this Scottish court is overturned. <laughs> um, again, I think the Scots um, will become very resentful of being led into what's increasingly looked like a hard Brexit against their will. And. Um, if Scotland goes, and I think it's looking more likely than not, it's only a matter of time. I believe there. so. What does that leave Northern Ireland? We've got an independent Ireland on one side of us, independent Scotland in the middle, and we're sandwiched in the middle. What are we, an English trading post sandwiched between two independent states, one of which is in the EU and one that's trying to get into it? It would honestly leave Northern Ireland's position in the Union, in my view, completely untenable. Do you think... Um Will Arlene Foster go down in history as the DUP leader who helped create a United Ireland because of her yeah, stance on Brexit? Well, I think, to be honest, Arlene Foster and Sammy Wilson have probably done more to bring about United Ireland than Jerry Adams ever did, to be perfectly honest. It's a law of unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they might be starting to smell the coffee now. There was some statement the other day about reaching out, you know, um, to nationals. The only way the union can survive in the long term is if there's a sufficient number of Catholics decide that they're going to vote to stay in the union. Just the way the only way you can have United Ireland in the short term is if you can attract a certain number of Protestants. The thing with politics is they'll always go running back to their base. You know, Peter Robinson voiced this a few um, years ago about reaching out, you know, to a Catholic group, you know, to the Catholic community. But the first um, dispute you're going to have over a parade or a flag somewhere, they're going to go straight back to their base. So um, I think that horse is bolted. I, I really do. So I, I can't see any process 
um, involving political unionism until basically the loser referendum. And then we'll fall into either pragmatists um, and purists. You'll get some people saying, okay, well, then we'll repartition or we want to have our own state or we'll resist this by force or whatever. And the other are going to be, okay, here's a democratic decision. We're going to have to make this work for us. Um, so whether then the new state type of birth it has really depends on how many pragmatists you create. And, and I think, therefore, you're probably going to have to have a conversation with civic unionism rather than political unions, because they will not get involved until after a poll's been lost. Because they're going to think, well, if, if we discuss it now, this is tantamount to negotiation. You're saying they would be shining a light on the subject, and that's what they don't want to do, though? Yeah, because the other thing is, too, the minute it starts to look as though it might work or start to look attractive, well, then they're doomed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, interesting. We could talk about that for hours and hours or weeks and weeks. Sam, tell me this, would you be in favour of the reintroduction of 50-50 recruitment policy to uh, boost numbers coming from the Catholic uh, nationalist background? Reluctantly, yes. I can remember how this um, came about. I said when we, um, going back to my days in training, and um, we had these um, peace groups in, and obviously the thing that was killing us was a Catholic under-representation. Like, there's no doubt about it. Like, and that was the phrase I used. You know, that is all, was always going to be the weight dragon, the RUC down. And some, so what they were talking about in consultation with outsiders, well, okay, well, we'll have to up the number of Catholics applying to join. And I says, well, look, even if they apply to join in the proportion of the population they are. It's gonna take thirty years, you know, you know, for them to, to get up mm-hmm. to the numbers they need to be. Yeah. And I remember in personnel um, used to have management meetings and as they're taking minutes at them and the head of recruitment was saying, Well look they've looked at this in America in terms of underrepresented groups and the only way that they were ever able to address it was through positive discrimination. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a very blunt tool, very blunt tool, caused a lot of resentment too. I thought the magic number actually was about 20%, not the most favoured number, you ideally want people to be there in the proportion they are, but around about 20%, chances are you're going to have a Catholic and a patrol car crew, and it's the old thing, if somebody's sitting in the group, you're not going to talk about them. You know, it changes the dynamic. If you've got women in a group of men, if you've got one woman out of ten, the men don't really change. But if you've got three, their behaviour starts to change. So, if it's the only way to remedy the problem, and at the minute it looks like it probably is, um, well then it was something we reluctantly agree to. But it can get a bit silly. I remember, um, again, one of my headquarters postings worked in a prosecution's office, and... um, there was one of the female civilian staff applied to join the police and she was turned down. And this is a, a girl who just said, I've no religion. And um, she then phoned her back and says, well, look, um, if I can prove that I was baptised a Catholic, would that make any difference? And the answer was, well, if you can prove that, you can start with us on Sunday. 
and that's what happened. So it, it's forcing people to put themselves in boxes as well, which the other, which the mate yeah. want to do. And then the other difficulty is, the logical conclusion of that is that the average Protestant getting in might be better qualified or better able than the average Catholic. So does that mean further on the line that, you, that Protestants are overrepresented in promotion and stuff? Are you going to have to start having positive discrimination in terms of promotions? It causes a lot of problems. And I know this is quite a long answer, but if it is the only way the imbalance can be redressed, then it might, there might be a case for doing it for limit. You know, for limited periods of time to bring the numbers up. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody would want to see it as a permanent feature. Sticking with this theme, Sam, just for now, do you think that the PSNA, PSNI has succeeded in becoming an inclusive organisation? That's really difficult for me to answer because I haven't um, been in it for 10 years. Um, it's certainly more successful than the RUC was. Um, and again, I got a message out of the blue a few weeks ago. Just somebody contacted me through a social media account. He <coughs> says, look, um, I'm a young Catholic from a very strong Republican part of the country. And um, he just recently started training with PSNI and um, asked me for what advice I could give him. <laughs> and I thought, wow, well, well, don't be like me for a start. No, um, uh, which was quite humbling, and uh, I just said, oh, "Look, well, work hard. You know, you know, listen to your trainers. Be careful who you choose um, to influence you." So, it is obviously more successful, but it's a way to go. Uh, and unfortunately, while you have this continuing dissident activity, that's going to continue to drive a wedge um, in areas because the simple fact is whether people like it or not. If there's bombs and shootings and stuff, the state will have to react to that in some sort of shape or form. The police will have to investigate it, and um, that that will cause a certain degree of friction. There's no doubt about that. Um, I don't know if they've got there yet. I really don't. Um, and as I said, I can't answer that. It's only people really who are, um, you know, I suppose living in Catholic areas that they're now policing who um, experienced the RUC in the past, they're old enough to remember that, that they think it's better or worse or whatever. My own view is they're getting there, but there's still a way to go. Okay. Uh, we're slightly over the hour mark here, Sam. Thanks for all your time today so far. Just one last question before we do wrap this up. <clears throat> Shared Ireland, um, I suppose we want to shine a light on all aspects of, <clears throat> I suppose, our past, our future, where we're yeah. going, and try and promote peace, harmony, and dialogue mm -hmm. throughout the whole island. But one of the subjects that we're going to shine a light on is um, mental health, mm -hmm. uh, PTSD, post-traumatic yes. stress disorder. And I suppose just want to have you here, coming from your unique background, yeah. being in the REC, yeah. um, the PSNI, I don't know, I should have maybe asked you before we hit the record button here, but, but has it affected you? Has it affected colleagues of yours? And if so, what does society, what do certain agencies and what do the governments need to do in order to try and help people coming from your background, ex-combatants, yeah. families, yeah. women, children? Yeah. 
and all members of society. Pretty loaded question, that. And pretty yeah, but, but it's absolutely a huge subject. Um, in terms of PTSD, yeah, I, I think I'm okay now, but years ago, you know, I'm pretty sure I had it, you know, in terms of... How did it affect you? Um, you know, dreams about things. Um, I still dislike sudden loud noises. You know, like if somebody walked by and dropped a tray with dishes on it or something, it would jump and, you know, and things like that. I'm, I'm actually surprised we're sitting during this recording today yeah. in the Stormont Hotel. Yeah. And your back is facing the door. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually shocked that, that you've um, sat here for an hour, um, not aware of who's walking in and out behind you. Well, I'm maybe a bit more relaxed than, <laughs> than, than I used to or, be. Or is it that you trust me that I'll, I'll look after you if I see anything happening? Um, well, uh, well uh, if I look over my shoulder, I can't see it a bit. <laughs> no, I'm a bit better now than I used to be. Yeah. You know, for a long time, I would still have that thing um, where I would want to watch the, you know, the door and stuff like that. But like going back to times in the police, the number of suicides was absolutely horrendous. Within the police? Yeah, absolutely horrendous. And... Um, at the time, you thought it was, um, you know, somebody split up their girlfriend or something and they um, shot themselves and people blamed it and that and the availability of guns. But then, um, lo and behold, once the ceasefires came in, the suicide rate dropped considerably. Like, there was times in the early 80s there were as many people shooting themselves as were being, you know, killed. Um, so I think what it was, you had this sort of, like, level... Of stress, and then you maybe would have had some day-to-day um, -day thing. Just put them over the top. You know, whether it be dead women, gambling. Um, it's there in a the wider community as well, because like the other thing that you used to observe all the time. You know, if you'd have been in people's houses, and sometimes if um, and this wasn't that frequent an activity, um, unless you're in certain units you know if you're in like the search a house or something like that like the nerve people were living on their nerves in certain areas you no know, like it was a bit of a cliche you know but um you know, mostly women on the nerve tablets and stuff men were probably on the drink you know um and you think about people you know with with bombs and what have you um, and even day-to-day -day security activity going on like it isn't a normal thing to have armed soldiers walking past your house all the time you know, and, um, and and people maybe living in places like West Belfast wouldn't have been unusual for them to maybe been stopped two or three times in a day, you know, driving about or whatever. So all of that's got to have some sort of impact. And now um, you have people talking about their studies, talking about that this um, stress is actually moving between generations, which, is, a, which is deeply worrying. There was a, a worrying study done by the University of Ulster recently that said people living in the north Mm -hmm. have three times more PSTT than any other country studied in the world. Yeah. Now that is shocking. Well, but hardly I, surprising. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if that's the case because um, it, it might be because of an older population. Like I, I travelled to Cambodia a few years ago and if you look at what countries like that went through, you know, with, with genocide and so on, um, yeah, but, but this study said that any country in the world that was studied... Aye, so that was studied, yeah. yeah. yeah probably in, in, in terms of Western Europe, certainly. But I think in this place we get um, a wee bit caught up in our own problems an awful lot. Yes, well, the, the country has been through a trauma, make no mistake about it. But it's not alone in that. 
you have places like the Balkans, Cambodia, Vietnam, um, other places in Central America, you know, it's had death squads and God knows what else, you know, and people are still running from them and trying to seek a refuge in other countries. So we're certainly not alone in that. Um, what perhaps we have had is because of an older population um, with probably a bigger proportion of people and then the length of time of course it went on uh, and then we're surrounded by fairly normal societies as well which maybe accentuates it but yeah there's an issue there and um, that should die out you would think as time goes by but um, I wouldn't even begin to guess what the answer to it really is. Uh, it's just totally beyond my field of knowledge or expertise. Mm -hmm. Okay. Finally, Sam, we always end with the same question. Um, if you could invite three people to your fictional dinner party, who would they be and why? Oh, uh, that really is... Um, uh, Everybody says that's always the hardest question. It, it is the hardest one. Um, and um, I've, I've so many heroes... Um, now, yeah, I'm just thinking of people off the top of my head right now because mm -hmm. I haven't considered this question. I would like Buzz Aldrin to be there. Oh, okay. Good choice. Because I grew up during the Apollo years and stuff and um, unlike Neil Armstrong, who's always reticent to discuss it, Buzz has always been pretty open yeah. and I would love to just hear about that whole, you know, wonderful adventure. Um, I like that choice. Another guy... Um, and I haven't thought about him a long time I don't even know if he's still alive a guy called um, Richard Leakey who in the 1980s he was um, in charge of the Kenyan Wildlife Department and at that time he more or less single-handedly saved the African elephant Okay. because I'm in the conservations whether him or David is he still alive? I, I don't know if he is but I suppose um, David Attenborough maybe for mm -hmm. the wonderful knowledge that he would have yeah. of the natural world because I've always been interested in stuff I like that choice as well you know, and stuff like that. Um, the other one, I think, would probably be some sort of historical character, maybe Abraham Lincoln or Gandhi or something like that. Um, Gandhi, I think, would be interesting because um, he showed that there was a non-violent route to change things. Sometimes I think violence is the easy option and um, it's much more difficult to do it through peaceful means but um, it can be done you know and maybe people should think of that a wee bit more that's a pretty interesting lineup you have for dinner parties <laughs> huh? I wouldn't mind gate crashing that <laughs> myself Sam Thompson on that note um, I thoroughly enjoyed speaking to you today and I know our listeners will have too um, I certainly was fascinated hearing your stories about your time in the RUC mm -hmm. and PSNI. And just before we go, Sam, um, if anybody wants to get their hands on your book, yeah. Knights in Armour, where can it okay. be purchased at? Uh, it, it should be in, in bookshops now. Um, if it, oh, as they say, all good bookshops. All shops. good bookshops. I know it's... Um, I've got a few pictures that's quite prominent in Belfast City Airport at the minute. If you can't get it at the bookshop, then do please support your local bookshops. But it's printed by Mercier Press in Cork, so you can get it from mercierpress.ie. Also, um, either electronic hard copy from Amazon and, of course, other online booksellers. <laughs> um, 
If you do want to get it, I would be very grateful. And if anybody has read it or intends to read it, wants to get in contact with me to ask a few questions, I'll be delighted to answer them. I think that's what they call in the business, a plug. It is. It is a plug and a very big one. But um, but thanks very much for having me along today. I enjoyed it. No problem, Sam. Um, thanks for listening all. And if you did enjoy the podcast with Sam Thompson, a retweet would be appreciated. Thank you. Take care. Speak soon.